You know, if I were to ask for a show of hands this morning of how many of us in this room today struggle with submitting to authorities in our life periodically, probably the only unraised hand would belong to the same people who also struggle with telling the truth, <laughs> right? We all struggle at various times with various types of authorities. It, it starts at a very young age. Uh, they don't, you don't have to be very old to rebel against authorities. I, I remember when our daughter was two or three years old, and I have her permission to share this uh, in case she's watching via live stream. And, and so uh, when she was two or three years old, her mother was trying to hold her hand as she went up or down the steps because she didn't want her to fall. And Emily looked at her mom and said, no, mommy, I doed it myself. I doed it myself. And I often thought her stubbornness developed before her vocabulary developed. <laughs> it doesn't stop with childhood, though, does it? it? It pertains to all of us. Sometimes it's an employee who uh, resents the authority of a supervisor. And sometimes the reason we struggle with authority is, is because a person in authority doesn't handle their authority well. Maybe it's an overbearing parent who is quick to condemn and, and punish a child for the things that he does wrong, but who never takes the time to encourage a child or commend a child for the things that he does right. Maybe it's that overbearing boss who puts rules and restrictions on his employees, but yet he's a hypocrite because he himself refuses to submit to those rules. But the reality is that all of us have authorities in our lives. And in fact, the Bible never says not to have authority over others. What it says is a warning against lording authority over others. In other words, don't be arrogant or dictatorial about the authority that you possess. But regardless of that, regardless of how good the authority may be, there are, there are many in our world today who simply resent anybody telling them what to do about anything. They resent all authority. For some, and that's why they don't want to serve Jesus. Perhaps they don't trust him to be an authority who is never hypocritical. Perhaps they don't trust him to be an authority who always actually does that which is right. Or, or maybe it's even as simple as they don't want him interfering with what they want to do. They don't want to live their lives in submission to anyone, and that includes God himself. Well, the passage that Derek read for us a moment ago twice mentions the word authority. And it's in regards to the authority that Jesus possessed and how it actually amazed the crowds in his day. And what I want us to see this morning is that unlike the imperfect authorities uh, that we often resent submitting our lives to, Jesus is the perfect authority. He always does that which is right. He, he never does that which is wrong. We can trust our lives to him. And I want us to look at several areas where Jesus had authority and the implication of that authority for our lives today. Uh, the first thing I want you to see is that Jesus exhibited authority through his words, and therefore we should obey him. Therefore we should obey him. Uh, in, in last week's message, if you'll recall, you remember that, that Jesus had been preaching in Nazareth previously, and, and he he began to preach and read from the prophet Isaiah chapter 61. And before he was finished with that sermon, uh, they were infuriated at him. And in fact, the Bible says that they were going to throw him off of a cliff. 
That's what we're told. Uh, let, let's look again in verses 18 and 19 that Derek read for us. This is what Jesus had, had read while he was in Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed. Well, he infuriated the crowds. They, they, they were going to throw him off of a cliff, but Jesus escaped. And verse 31 of our passage this morning tells us that he went down to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was about 20 miles from Nazareth, and it's almost 700 feet below sea level. And so when the Bible says that Jesus went down to Capernaum, it literally means he went down to Capernaum. Uh, when we were in Israel several years ago, we visited the site of where the synagogue would have been that Jesus preached from that day. We, it, it's the remains of a second century synagogue uh, that was on top of the synagogue that Jesus would have preached from. And in fact, you could see the stones uh, from where we were standing. You could see the stones that, going back to the first century synagogue where Jesus would have preached. It's very interesting. But I'll tell you, when Jesus gets to Capernaum, what he's going to do in our passage today is to give examples of how he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. What he preached in Nazareth, he's going to now demonstrate in Capernaum. What he will do in Capernaum is to give evidence of his fulfillment of verses 18 and 19 that we just read. But what we're going to find is that while Jesus was met with rage in, in Nazareth, at least initially in Capernaum, he was met with amazement. He was met with amazement. The Bible says they were amazed at his teaching. They could not believe their ears. They had never heard preaching like this before. And the reason that it's given in verse 32 is that his message was with authority. It was with authority. Well, that begs the question, what is it, exactly does it mean uh, for his message to be with authority? If we were to look over in the parallel passage in Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 22, Mark says it this way, uh, he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Now, that sheds a little bit of insight for us this morning. Mark Twain once said, there's no such thing as a new idea. There's no such thing as a new idea. Had he been around in in, in Jesus' day, the religious leaders would have loved him because that was their philosophy. Uh, everything that they said would be a quote from a previous teacher. And, and in fact, it seemed as if they prided themselves for their lack of personal insight. Uh, they, they never had an original thought. They simply regurgitated all that they had heard from another scholar. But Jesus was different. His message it was powerful. His message was directly from God's Word. Jesus didn't have to quote anyone. He didn't have to quote a previous scholar. You don't have to quote anyone else for their thoughts on a subject when you're God because your opinion is the only opinion that matters. Jesus didn't have to read the commentaries. Jesus was the commentary. And His words were authoritative. And the Bible says that Jesus was also full of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever sat through a sermon and you felt like the pastor was preaching directly to you, even though he had no idea what was going on in your world. That's how the Holy Spirit works at times. And, and sometimes it doesn't feel good. Sometimes it's painful. It, it's like a scalpel uh, cutting out a slice of, of diseased flesh from our body. It's, it's a painful thing, and yet sometimes it's, it's good and necessary. And sometimes if we're not careful, we'll be offended by it. 
But what I want to say to you this morning is, is as, a, as a believer, God's word should not offend us. It should convict us. And you see, there's a difference. There's a difference. I'm offended when I want the message to change. I'm, I'm convicted when the message requires me to be changed. Now, there's a couple of implications for us this morning. First of all, individually, Jesus was preaching God's word. His word was authoritative. And therefore, it is the responsibility of every one of us as believers, if you're a Christian, to read God's Word, to listen to God's Word, and to seek to obey God's Word because it is authoritative in our lives. It's not good enough to simply hear the, the Bible. It's, not simple, it's good enough to, to, to come and hear a message and then to go on our way and never to seek to actually obey the Word that is preached. James 1.22 says we're to be doers of the Word, and not hearers only. Does Christ and His Word have authority in your life? There, there are many people today who, who claim the name of Christ, and yet if you were to look at their lives, you see no evidence of it. You, you see nothing that they're doing that would indicate that they actually know Jesus because God's Word is not ruling authoritatively in their lives. But secondly, from a, from a corporate perspective, from a church-wide perspective, uh, I think this passage is a good reminder that it's imperative that the message that we preach is God's message, and it's not the message of prevailing culture. Jesus wasn't worried about preaching the message of the prevailing culture and what was going to be popular in his day. Uh, it, its authority is the reality that it's, that, that it's God's word. And as a church, that's the authority with which we preach. We have no authority on our own. The authority that we have is, in fact, God's Word. When Jesus preached, he wasn't preaching based on, on what was acceptable or popular in the culture around him. He was preaching God's Word. A couple of weeks ago, we saw him rely on God's Word when he was being tempted by the devil uh, in the wilderness. In verses 18 and 19 of this chapter, we see him preaching from Isaiah 61. Jesus believed the Scriptures, and Jesus preached the Scriptures, and people were either offended or convicted. We should follow suit. We should follow suit. But Jesus was not only exhibiting authority through his words. I want to suggest this morning that Jesus also exhibited authority through his actions. And therefore, we can trust him. We can trust him. We see this in two different types of miracles uh, in verses 33 through, 30, uh, through 41. Now, the first one is a, is a passage that Derek read for us where we see him exhibiting authority over evil. In the first part of chapter 4, if you'll recall back a couple of weeks to the pastor's sermon, Jesus is driven by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And we know the result of that encounter. We know that he overcame Satan in his own life. The question today in this passage is, does he have authority over Satan in the lives of others? He has authority over Satan in his life, according to the first few verses of chapter 4. Now, in the latter verses of chapter 4, uh, the question is being answered, does he, does he have authority over Satan in the lives of others? And we see the answer to that question in verses 33 through 37 that Derek read for us. I'm just going to tell you this morning, if what happened uh, in these verses were to happen in our service, I would call for our security team in a nanosecond. <laughs> I, I would be looking for those men to step up 
uh, and, and do what was necessary because, because a man in the crowd, as Jesus was preaching, begins to scream at Jesus. But, but it wasn't just a man screaming. Uh, rather, it was a man possessed by a demon. Now, that's something that, that's something that seems foreign to us today outside of a horror movie from Hollywood. And many people today would just assume that this was that this was some first century way of describing some form of mental illness. But that's not what's going on here. There, there's a vast difference between someone who is possessed by a demon versus someone who struggles with, with mental illness. Look at verse 34. Look what the demon cries out, the Bible records. Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. When that demon says, have you come to destroy us, it seems as if he's implying that in order for Jesus to get to him, he's going to have to destroy the man as well. And so in verse 35, Jesus rebukes him and says, be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, look what Luke adds here, he came out of him without doing him any harm. Luke wants us to see that Jesus rebukes the demon and that Jesus is so powerful that not only can he command the demon to, to come out of the man, he can do it without harming the man. You say, Pastor, we're, we're in the 21st century. Are, do, do you mean to, to say that you believe in demons? And my response to you would be as, as surely as I believe in a God in heaven who has angels, I believe in Satan who has his demons, that are fallen angels. And I believe it for multiple reasons. First of all, I believe in them because to say otherwise is, is an attack on the very inspiration of Scripture. The Bible says that it's inspired by God. In other words, the Bible is God-breathed, and God, in His Word, explicitly refers to demons. Second reason I believe is because the demon recognized the identity of Christ in this passage. Verse 34 tells us that the demon knew Jesus' name. And not only did he know his name, he knew where Jesus was from, Jesus of Nazareth. And most importantly, he knew his identity as the Holy One of God. You see, the people at that time didn't know who Jesus was. This was early on in his ministry. But this demon knew him to be the Holy One of God. It's a good reminder to us that you can know who Jesus is and not know Jesus. And a third reason I believe in the reality of demons is because Jesus believed in them. Jesus, the Bible says, rebuked the demon and commanded it to come out of the man. Now, Jesus is the omniscient one. He, he is the one who knows all. He was more than able to discern between a person with a demon and a person with a medical condition. Now, I say all that to say this. While I'll affirm their existence, we need to be careful on this topic not to overemphasize them or even to underemphasize the role of the demonic. C.S. Lewis, in his preface to the Screwtape Letters, writes this, and he warns us about the two extremes that we're often drawn into concerning the, the reality and the work uh, of demons. He says, and I quote, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. 
So on the one hand, as a Christian, I don't sit around and fear the devil and his minions. You say, Pastor, can, can I, uh, as a Christian, am I going to be demon-possessed? No. No, I, I, don't, I don't sit around and worry about uh, being, uh, being possessed by a demon. In fact, verse 34 says that the demon screamed out at Jesus. It, and it was a scream of fear that Jesus would destroy it. James chapter 2, verse 19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe, and they what? They shudder. They tremble. That's what's going on here. The demon fears Jesus because uh, he knows that his demise is inevitable. I don't fear demons because the Bible says, greater is he who is in me than he that's in the world. So as Christians, we have the Spirit of God within us. Therefore, whom shall we fear? The final outcome is already determined. Do I believe in, uh, the, in the reality of demons? Yes. Do I go to sleep at night worried about them? Absolutely not. I've got too many other things in life to worry about. But on the other hand, we need to recognize that we are still in a real battle with a real enemy who wants to do real harm to us. And while I may not be possessed by a demon, I still have to undergo spiritual warfare from time to time, even as a Christian. Listen, it's no, it's no accident that families are destroyed in our culture. Why is that? Because there's spiritual warfare. Satan wants to destroy our homes. There's no, there's no uh, surprise that, that Satan and his minions want to discourage us, that they want to confuse us, that they want us to sleep in on Sunday mornings. I said in the first service, how, why is it so hard uh, to come to church on Sunday morning? We get up to go to work Monday through Friday, but Sunday morning it's really hard to, to drag out of the bed, and that includes the preacher. You know, that's me. I don't know what it's like for you. Why is it that so often uh, the spats that occur between husbands and wives happen on Sunday morning on the way to church? Because there is a spiritual component, a dynamic there that Satan wants to destroy us. The Bible says he comes to rob and to kill and destroy. And so he will do anything that he can to disrupt or discourage or confuse God's people. The Christian life is, in fact, a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6.12 says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual for for forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And friend, let me just tell you this morning, if you've never sensed a spiritual battle in your life, e either you're oblivious or you're already on the wrong team because there are spiritual battles in the lives of believers. The famous evangelist D.L. Moody once said it this way, I believe Satan to exist for two reasons. First, the Bible says so, and second, I've done business with him. <laughs> and you can probably relate to that. And so as Christians and, and as, as churches that stand upon the Word of God, it's imperative that we remember that there will be spiritual warfare when we love what Jesus loved and when we hate what Jesus hated. We need to accept the fact and come to grips with the reality that the world will not applaud when we stand for biblical truth. We, we, we should not expect an ovation when we hold the positions uh, that, that we've held since the founding of Christianity, but that are no longer acceptable in the eyes of our culture. I would suggest this morning that in many ways, if you look at our culture today, even in this nation... There's probably not another time in our history that we're more like the, the culture of first century Christianity than we are today. 
The culture in that time didn't respect life, for example. It was Christians who would care for the orphans. People in that time worshipped a plethora of gods. They didn't appreciate the early believers. And yet Christians did not acquiesce to the culture around them. And while there were many who hated the believers, there were others who were drawn to the gospel message and Christianity grew as a result. Let, let me be clear, ladies and gentlemen, we need to love the world and we need to show the world the love of Christ, but we should not expect the world to love us in return. The world will never love us unless we become like the world and the only hope for the world is if we don't. Just as there's a spiritual warfare Toward believers, there's spiritual warfare against those who don't know Christ. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that every lost person, every person who's not a Christian, is possessed by a demon. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. But the Bible does teach that we live in a fallen world that's under spiritual bondage, and so every person needs to be delivered from the bondage of sin. There's an important thing to remember, and that is as human beings, we're not born in a neutral spiritual state. We're not born spiritually neutral, and then one day we decide whether we want to walk in spiritual darkness or whether we want to walk in spiritual light. No, we're not born neutral. The Bible says we're born into sin. We do not become sinners when we sin. We sin because we're sinners. You've heard our pastor say that many times. We're born sinners, and as soon as we're old enough, we sin. And if you don't believe that, we invite you to our preschool ministry for Exhibit A. Right? Go work with two-year-olds for a morning, and you will see. We're not all demon-possessed, but we all need deliverance from the bondage of sin. And this passage shows us that Jesus is able to do just that because he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. It's as if Jesus is saying, oh, you, you don't believe that he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives? You, you don't believe that I've been sent to free those who are oppressed? Well, watch this. Watch, watch this. Uh, watch me free this captive from the power of this demon. And verse 36 tells us again that the people were amazed. This time, because with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Jesus has authority over evil. Friend, that's good news for those of us. If we've got family members or, or co-workers or neighbors who are lost without Christ... We believe that Jesus can set them free. That, that's, why, that's why we don't quit praying for them, as discouraging as it may be at times. As long as they have breath in their bodies, there is hope for their souls. Don't give up. Jesus has authority over evil. Jesus also exhibited authority over illness. In verses 38 through 41, we didn't read that passage this morning, but, but it goes on to show us that Jesus is not done yet. The casting out of the, de of the demon is not the last example of how Jesus fulfills Isaiah 61. Verses 38 through 41 tell us that Jesus left the synagogue after preaching that, and he goes to the home of Simon Peter. And when he gets there, he discovers that Simon Peter's mother-in-law is very sick with a fever. Now, Dr. Luke points out that it was, a very high, it was a high fever. In other words, this lady is down for the count. She is unable to do anything. But fortunately... Fortunately for her, the one who is a fulfillment of Isaiah 61 and who has authority over illness shows up. And the Bible says that he stood over her and he rebuked the fever and it left her. 
And not only did he heal her, but verses 40 and 41 tell us that, that while the sun was setting, in other words, the Sabbath day was, was winding down so that people could begin to, to do those things that would be considered work once again, as the, Sabbath, as the sun was setting and the Sabbath was ending, people began to bring their sick family members, their sick loved ones to Jesus, and he began to heal them. And he was casting out demons from many who came that day. I want you to notice the response, however, of the mother-in-law. In verse 39, the Bible says, And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And then notice the result. And immediately she got up and waited on them. Verse 39 says, immediately she got up and waited on them. What a wonderful picture of gratitude to the Lord that he heals her instantaneously and then immediately she gets up and begins to serve him and others as a result. Friend, that's an important lesson for us this morning. When the Lord blesses us, when the, when the Lord gives us his grace and works in our lives, he does not do it only for our benefit, though he certainly loves us. Uh, to whom much is given... Much is required. And one of the ways to serve the Lord is to serve his people. That's what we see going on in this passage. Peter's mother-in-law gets up, begins to serve Jesus, begins to serve others. See, ministry is one of the purposes of the church, and it's why every Christian should be a part of a local church. There's, there's no excuse for a Christian who is, who is physically able uh, to, to, to sit at home and, and watch live stream if they're able to go and actually serve in the local church. I'm thankful to the Lord for live stream. What a, what a tremendous blessing for those people who, who, uh, who can't come to church for whatever reason. Maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's work-related. Whatever the case, I'm thankful for all of that. But, but that's, no, that's no substitute for active church membership because we're to serve one another. That's, that's a result of the gratitude of what Jesus has done in our lives. Third thing I want you to see this morning is that Jesus' authority did not lessen his dependence on the Father, and therefore we should imitate him. The chapter ends with Jesus going to a secluded place. Mark tells us that he went there to pray. Think about that for a moment. Here's the one who preached with such authority that the crowds were amazed. Here's the one who possessed such authority that he could command the demons to flee. Here's the one who had such authority that he could speak and heal the sick. And yet this same Jesus removes himself from the crowd so that he could commune with his father because he needed to discern and follow the father's will. You see, the crowds wanted him to stay in Capernaum. Verse 42 tells us, will Jesus succumb to the will of the people and stay in Capernaum? Well, after spending time in prayer, notice what he says in verse 43. He says to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. Now, this again is a fulfillment of Isaiah 61. Notice verse 18. He has anointed me to what? Preach the gospel to the poor. He has what? Sent me to proclaim release to the captives. We go down to verse 43. I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. The people wanted to keep him for themselves, but Jesus refused because he had come to seek and to save the lost. He was God incarnate. 
He demonstrated authority in his words. He had authority over, the, over evil. He had authority over illness, and yet he never deviated. He never strayed from following the will of his father. And that's what we're to do as well. Our lives are to be dependent on him, surrendered to him, and filled by him. And we'll never do that outside of a dependence on God that's evidenced by a life of prayer. Prayer is one of the most difficult spiritual disciplines for most Christians. And I'm convinced that the reason it's so difficult is one of spiritual warfare because it's so important. It's so important to the child of God to have the power of God in his or her life. And you don't get that without spending time before the Lord. Now, as we begin to prepare for the Lord's Supper this morning, I want to say a couple of things. I don't want to mislead you. Jesus has authority over evil, but he doesn't stop all evil. In fact, we look around our world this very day, and if we're not careful, we can become very overwhelmed at the sheer evil in our world. He doesn't always stop evil men from committing evil acts. Just look at the cross. Just look at the cross. Jesus has authority over illness, but he doesn't heal all illness in our world. And in fact, he didn't even heal all illness when he was walking this planet. The question for us this morning is this. Can you trust him even when he doesn't do what we desire for him to do? Can you trust him even when he doesn't answer our prayers the way we desire for him to answer our prayers? Let me just remind us, if he had answered the prayers of Jesus' family and friends, Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross. Can we trust him? I shared a quote in my BFG last week from Charles Spurgeon. It's a quote that I love, and I think it's relevant here as well. Spurgeon said these words, God is too good to be unkind, and he's too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. You may be in a season of life where you're struggling to trust him. Maybe he hasn't answered your prayers the way that you would have wanted him to. But the Lord's Supper is a wonderful opportunity to remember that Jesus is, in fact, worthy of our trust. After all, it was Jesus who came to do for us that which we could not do for ourselves. It was Jesus who lived a perfect life, and it was Jesus who took our place on the cross for the punishment that we rightly deserved so that by faith we could receive his righteousness into our lives that we do not deserve. It was Jesus who was raised on the third day from the dead, defeating death, hell, and the grave. And for those of us who have, who have turned from our sin and we've placed our faith in Jesus, the Bible guarantees that we'll have eternal life with him. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. He has done for us so much. We can trust him. If you're a baptized believer this morning, uh, you're a member of a Bible-believing church, and you're not perfect, but you're striving to walk with the Lord, then we would certainly uh, welcome you to partake with us this morning. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask our deacons and our pastor to come to help distribute the elements. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Father, we recognize that in ourselves there's nothing good. And yet you loved us, not because of our goodness, but in spite of our badness. Father, thank you so much. Thank you that we do not serve someone who's in a grave outside of Jerusalem, but we serve a risen Savior, one who has demonstrated his authority through his words and through his actions. Father, we believe that Jesus can set the captives free. We believe that he can heal the sick. And Father, we believe that even when he doesn't answer the way we want him to, he is good, and he always does that which is right. Father, if there are those here today who do not know the Lord Jesus, would you work in their hearts today that they might just simply open up their heart and ask you to forgive them of their sins, to be uh, your, their Savior, to change them, Father, from the inside out. For those of us who are believers, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, may be, we be reminded as we think back of just how much Jesus loves us and the lengths to which he was willing to go to set the captives free. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.